0: It's because I got a little chest cold. It's not the mic. It's not the sound guys. Shout outs to the sound guys, right? You never notice the sound guys in church when everything is going well, right? You only you only look back there. Williamsburg, which I found out after moving down here last year, is not the shortest of drives. So to come down, be with us, lead worship was awesome. We thank you. Um, my wife, as some of you know, if you were here last week, she is in Richmond. Her cousin, who was her age, who she spent a lot of her childhood with, passed away last week in a tragic car accident at about two p.m. right before service. So she's been up there pretty much all week, um, and she's there right now. Actually, the funeral is at four o'clock. So you could continue to pray for her family. You know, we serve a God that says, those who mourn will be comforted. Even says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So let's continue to pray for their family. Um, But uh, she and I have, I've driven up there a bunch of times this week, but we're talking about FaceTime, And she's called me multiple times, and I've let it ring through. And I know she's on the other end, like, are you serious? What's going on right now? You're just going to let it go to voicemail? But then I'll FaceTime her right back. Because we talked about last week, there's all these kinds of communication, whether it's phone calls, text messages, group me's, direct messages on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, all these ways to communicate. But to me, FaceTime is the most intimate. Because you can make eye contact with the person you're talking to. And I read an article early on uh, when we were married. We're working on six years now. Um, Shout out to Steph's parents if they podcast. Their 33rd anniversary is tomorrow. But I read an article when we were newlyweds, because you're trying to have like the, the best marriage ever, right? So I'm reading all these blogs, and on Facebook at the time, everybody was posting like six things for this, and the fifth one will make you laugh, or five things for this, and the fourth one will give you goosebumps. It's tired and played out. But there was an article that gave a list of things that every married couple should do regularly. So what do you think some of the things were on that list? Things that married couples should do together regularly? Pray. Anybody else? Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Intimacy. Yep. (laughs) Kids are in kids' church. We can talk about that. (laughs) Who else? Go on dates. Yeah. Keep dating your wife after you get married. Advice for all you singles. Dating never stops. Amanda. Have fun. Laugh together. Talk to each other. Communicate. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Fight? Dude, those two go hand in hand because I don't remember if it was that list. I don't know if it was an article or a person. They said to me, you haven't communicated if you haven't argued. So I would try to pick fights with Steph. Like, you know, just talking, talking louder or like insulting where she put the salt, but she would know. So it's hard to pick a fight with somebody if they know you're picking a fight, so we would end up laughing within uh, 30 seconds of that. But it was fun while it lasted. After a while, she just got annoyed, so I was like, all right, let me stop. We'll, we'll argue when we argue. So I don't know I don't know. that wasn't in this list. One of the things, though, that they said you should do daily with your spouse is five minutes of uninterrupted eye contact. Has anybody ever done that once with their spouse? Good, because I completely ignored that. We tried a couple times. We maybe got to like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and we're like, this is dumb. Or we started laughing. So we've never in our marriage maintained eye contact for five minutes. But that article was, was, the idea was mutual gaze will arouse emotion. You know, when you look somebody in the eyes, it's intimate. And it's not always positive emotion. Right? If you watch the, the MMA, right? the, the co- press conference slash weigh-in this week, they have them you know square off and look at each other, and within 30 seconds, they were brawling, and they had to have like, armed cops on stage. So eye contact doesn't always arouse the right emotion, but for people who are in love, right, for people that love each other, eye contact can be overwhelmingly positive. It establishes a relational connection, and it's not just with your spouse. How often do you ask your kids when you want the whole truth, nothing but the truth, you say, hey, look me in the eyes, right? because it establishes a connection. It makes the moment intimate. So even at the altar between man and wife, we see that a veil is lifted to allow a full gaze, to allow eye contact. And God wanted to lift a veil in the gospel through his son to a new level of intimacy with us. And we've been working through this Exodus 32 through 34 narrative that sets the course for the rest of the Bible, specifically this passage in Exodus 33. But at the end of Exodus 34 in verses 34 through 35, as it's talking about Moses, who had this intimate relationship with God, it says at the end of Exodus 34 that whenever Moses entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went back to speak with the Lord. So all the way later in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 13 through 18, Paul references this. I'm going to read most of this passage real quick. You don't have to turn there, but we're going to look at this verse in multiple facets tonight. It's verses 13 through 18 of 2 Corinthians. It says, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Even to this day, when Moses is red, a veil covers their hearts, speaking of the Israelites. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So we can never spend enough time in the word. So I want to take that which we're going to apply tonight to the relationship that that Moses had with God. How do we establish that kind of relationship? Because he had an intimate relationship with God. Again, it says in Exodus 33, verses 7 through 14, that Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So Moses, as we talked about last week, would pitch this tent to maintain relationship with God. He spent so much time in God's presence. It was so intimate that it was described as face-to-face, and he got a, a skin condition. The Bible says his face was radiant. It was glowing. And I don't know if it was the Beyonce, like I can see your halo, like it was just a halo around his face, or if it was actual skin was softly glowing. But here's a, here's a rabbit trail. As an art major, I used to see pictures of Moses. Anybody ever seen sculptures or paintings of Moses where he has horns? A lot of old art, he's got horns because the Hebrew word for horns is pretty much identical with the word for radiance. So I used to see pictures of Moses, sculptures of him. I mean, I grew up in Sunday school. And I was like, why does he have horns? Are they trying to say something about him? Like he was having FaceTime with the devil or like what was up? But it's because the Hebrew word for radiance is so close to the word for horns. So now, you know, reading rainbow, spark the rainbow right there. But uh, Moses wore a veil. So God's glory didn't destroy the hard-hearted, stiff-necked Israelites. His veil functioned similarly to the veil or curtain in the tabernacle or in the future temple Because just as people couldn't enter into the holy place to behold God's glory, now they couldn't behold the full glory of God reflected on Moses. And it's unfortunate, because in that passage we just read in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says we are transformed by his glory. When we step into the presence of God, when we step into his glorious presence, we're transformed. It changes us. It impacts us. We were made to flourish in the presence of God. The problem is, how can we stand in it? Because for the Israelites, right, an unholy people stepping into a, the presence of a holy God, that's trouble. That's trouble. There needs to be atonement made. So it's, it's in the heart of the good news that, that now we can stand before God. We see the presence of God, though, throughout Bible. It defined his interactions with his people throughout Scripture, right? He made a covenant to show that he wanted to be present with humanity. He made laws to show how we should walk and live in his presence. And he established sacrifices for when sin separated his people from his presence. But see, you didn't break from that. See, when 10, a little over 10 years ago, I got saved at an altar at, at a church called Life Church in Williamsburg. And I remember as I was at the altar, a, a, a guy came up behind me, and I'll, I'll talk about this more later, and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, build yourself an altar. Right? Find a place where you can pursue God. Do this. Encounter him daily. And I took that advice to heart. It affected my pursuit of God, and I still think about that quote all the time. But in Moses' day, in his time, this was a big no-no. You didn't just build yourself an altar and worship God. In Joshua 22, at the end of their conquest, after they've been obedient and they've, they've conquered all the lands for them, the tribes of Reuben and Manasseh, they go back to the other side of the Jordan, the land they had claimed, and they built this big altar. It says it's a great, impressive altar. And this was significant not only because of its size, but because of an altar's meaning, because of sacrifice. God had rules to set his people apart. In Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14, it basically says that you don't build altars other than the ones God commanded. In Leviticus 17, 8 through 9, it says if you don't sacrifice at the tabernacle or temple, essentially you're cut off. So right away you see Joshua squad up with a bunch of guys to go over and and talk to them, investigate And do what was needed. In Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 16, it gave them instruction for this moment. It says, If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. That town is to remain in a ruin forever and never be rebuilt. So that's serious business. You didn't just go and build an altar. And luckily Joshua and the priests that were with him and the people that were with him, they obeyed that to the T. They, they, they probed and investigated first. Because for the, these tribes, they were building a monument. They wanted to feel unity with their brothers across the Jordan River. So for them, it wasn't an altar. They weren't going to make sacrifices at it. But lessons from this story for us. The first is that we can't worship just in any way we please. Jesus asked for people who worship in spirit and in truth. That's John 4, 24. And we can't just say that I'm going to worship God and then just live my life in, in any way that I please. Because God cares about worship. And worship encompasses your whole life, not just a moment on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning if you haven't caught on to Saturday night yet. But the second thing that's also significant about this passage is is that it doesn't totally apply to us. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says where the spirit is, there's freedom. And in the context of Sinai and Moses and the commands, the freedom Paul speaks to is a freedom from the veil that keeps us out of the presence of God. Again, a veil covered Moses' face as he was their mediator. A veil covered the Holy of Holies in the temple as as atonement was made and mediation was carried out through sacrifice. But during Jesus' death on the cross, the veil was torn. It's as if he wanted the church, the bride of Christ, to have a, a more full gaze on his face, to be able to step deeper into the presence of God. So how? How do we establish a relationship that could be so intimate in nature that you could describe it as face-to-face with God, like FaceTiming with the throne room of heaven. Last week we looked at why. Why prioritize God's presence? This week I want to look at how. What stones should we lay at the base of the altar? What practices and what perspectives should be at the foundation of the altar we build to pursue God? And to work through that tonight, I just want to look at John 1. Because it highlights the work that Jesus did. And it also points back in many ways to these passages in Exodus 33 and in Exodus 34. So John 1 says this. It says, the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. So the first verse in John chapter 1 I want to pull from is John 1, 14, where it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as we talked about ever so briefly at the end of last week's service, in the Greek, it basically says that he made Well, he doesn't say he made his dwelling. It says the word became flesh and essentially tabernacled among us. It's the way it's translated. See, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, as we read Exodus, we see it's the the place of sacrifice. It's the place of being able to to step into and meet with God. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, opened that door to God's presence for all his people. So he didn't die for a, a want or an added benefit. He died because that's a need. We're made to flourish in the presence of God. Moses felt this need. He said, I'm going to pitch this tent and press into God's presence. And because of Jesus, we, like Moses, can pursue God's presence in an intimate way. Jesus displaced the tabernacle and the need for a mediator by stepping in as the mediator and dying for us. Again, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 talks about how Jesus was the perfect high priest. And because of his sacrifice, we can enter into the presence of God. And Moses had his own access and he took advantage. It says in verse 7 of Exodus 33 in the New Living Translation that it was Moses' practice. It wasn't just a, a once in a while pursuit. wasn't a break glass in case of emergency. It wasn't a I'm only going to enter God's presence when I need another miracle because God did plenty of them. It was before I'm going to do anything else, before I'm going to tweet to my million followers, because he was leading about a million Israelites, before I'm going to do anything else, it's my practice, it's at my core to get into God's presence. But if you look at the rest of Israel, they were cool. (laughs) They were cool with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them by night and day. And it was almost as much, or it almost seemed like they were cool with God having pursued them, delivered them, but they didn't want to pursue him in obedience says they were hard-hearted, they were stiff-necked. Many died, many missed the promised land, many missed out on God's promises. How many people in the church are missing out on God's promises because they're okay with Jesus having pursued them, but they're not stepping into any pursuit of God and his presence that's available to us. See, there's this flawed perspective that we can sometimes get where we've been there, we've done that. I met Jesus at the cross or I met God at an altar and I've checked off that box and the pursuit ends there. We don't need to seek him. There's no recognition that he's inexhaustible. There's no prioritization of his presence that we talked about last week. You know, at age 20, when I was a senior at William & Mary, my parents raised me in the church. I had a sense of, I've been there. I did that. I went to services. I prayed prayers. I I went to the altar. I believed in Jesus in the sense that James says that demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. It never affected my pursuit of God. I never established a relationship with him. But at an altar at age 20, after a female invited me to a hip-hop concert that I didn't know was a part of a greater conference, that there were going to be pastors there preaching, one of them just rocked me. And I remember getting at the altar and just kneeling in God's presence and crying and, and realizing that God is king didn't just mean I, I had to get my life together before I went to him. didn't mean that at all. It meant that I needed to get in the presence of God and regularly so he could change me and transform me because I was a mess. I needed to get in his presence pronto and make it a priority so that he could change my life. And that never changes. And again, that gentleman, I don't know who he was, walked up behind me, touched my shoulder and said, hey, build yourself an altar. Establish a tent of meeting, a, a tabernacle, a temple, a place where you can pursue God's presence to FaceTime with my Savior who, who died for me. And again, didn't just die for a want. He didn't come to dwell among us and die among us just for a cherry on top. To get into the presence of God is a need. And the reality is that should be a foundation of your altar, a revelation that you can't go without, that you need God's presence. If you never grasp that, if that never becomes a part of you, your pursuit of God will always flounder. It will never pick up to the pace it needs to be. Again, like we said last week, it's not a matter of availability for us. It's a matter of whether we will avail ourselves to the ability that Jesus Christ gave us to step into the presence of God. Making time for God, though, it means that you're going to take time from something else. We talked last week about reprioritizing the presence of God. You start looking at your time, that's almost as as tense as looking at your money, right? Like, it will show some idols in your life, but you need to dethrone them. Again, how do you deal with them? You realize your need. God needs to be on the throne of our hearts. Because if he's not, then our pride and a million pursuits will take his place. And until you realize, again, his presence is a need, your pursuit will remain derailed. Timothy Keller is a great author, but he actually quotes his wife, Kathy Keller. Shout out to all the women that were devoted. She wasn't there, but I just thought about that. Pastor's wife. But she said about this need to be in God's presence, that if the doctor said you have a fatal condition, and unless you take this medicine every night from 11 to 1115 and swallow these pills, you'll be dead by morning. If that was the case, she said, you would never miss. You would never say I was too tired or I didn't get to it or I was watching a movie and I didn't leave time. You would never do that. The truth is, in the, in the same way, we need the presence of God. We need him in our hearts. And again, without that revelation as a foundation of our altar, then our pursuit of God will always fall short. We need a revelation of the God who sustains us. Again, Moses was leading over a million people. He needed some sustaining. How many of you guys know that guy, without God, would have stressed himself to death? So in Exodus 34, Moses asks to see God. And God's reply is, you can't see my face and live. So the second verse I want to look at from John 1 that speaks to building an altar and pursuing God is this one in John 1:18. It says, no one has ever seen God. And this would have resonated with the Jews, because they would have known this story where, where Moses requests to see his face, and God says, if I did that, you would be wiped out. But it goes on to say in John 1 that the one and only Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. We've seen the Word made flesh. In Scripture, we've seen Jesus. Jesus says in John fourteen nine, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And in Exodus 34, when Moses requests to see God's glory, he discloses himself in several utterances. One of them being the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And in the Hebrew, love and faithfulness is synonymous with grace and truth. You could have translated it that way. And when you look at John 114, it says Jesus came full of grace and truth, truly God in the flesh. And when you realize who Jesus was, God, and what he did, giving us access to the presence of God, that should affect our prayers. It should affect their frequency, it should affect their fervency. When we catch sight of who Jesus is, we'll ask him more, we'll pursue him more. Jesus to the woman at the well, the same conversation where we had this conversation about uh, worshiping God in spirit and truth. He says to her in John 4:10 that if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Basically, he's saying, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask. Again, there's a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus and, and not asking much of him. Spending time at your altar in pursuit of God's presence is about letting who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it shift your perspective again. And before he ever went to the cross, Jesus had his own practice. We're talking a lot tonight about practice. Yeah, got a couple smiles. I did that once in, sorry, that's an Allen Iverson quote. I said that once in youth ministry and blank stares. I'm like, when were you born? Like 2002? What's wrong with you? So thank you, everybody who got that. Jesus had a practice. Shout out to Praxis also here serving tonight. But before I go completely off tracks, Jesus had a practice that we should take note of. In Luke 5, 16, I think we hit on this in the, in the rest sermon about rest. It says, he withdrew to lonely places and pray. And as we talk about stones that should be placed at the foundation of our altar, one of them is solitude. What did David call his altar, tabernacle, whatever you want to call it, his daily pursuit of God's presence? In Psalm 91, verse 1, he talks about the secret place. Why secret? Because nobody else knew about it. Why nobody else know about it? because they weren't invited, right? Their notifications, text calls couldn't reach them there. It was spiritual airplane mode. In Psalm 46, Psalm 62, and Psalm 131, these are all other songs where David talks about quieting his soul. Not that David, but David Godwin, the youth pastor now at, at the Newport News campus. We, we roomed together for maybe six to eight months. I was getting ready to buy a house. He needed a spot to stay, so we just, we shared a bedroom in a two-bedroom apartment for six to eight months, and because we liked each other we could pull that off but I just remember there's three guys limited square feet and like if I wanted solitude and just uh, the ability to think I would shut myself in the closet and there was a tv on the other side of that wall so it wasn't always perfect silence but David will tell you I would just lock myself in the closet say don't bother me I'm gonna go pray see our culture doesn't support solitude Rarely are we alone or in silence. In cultures past, like you're walking, you don't have an iPod and headphones, you're in silence, you're able to reflect. Nowadays, you got to fight for it. Jesus in that regard was ahead of his time because he always had crowds following him, pressing up against him. Even when they weren't there, often it was the disciples. So Jesus had to fight for solitude, and he did. Again, in, in Luke, it says he withdrew to lonely places to pray. If Jesus couldn't go without solitude, then then we as well need it to reflect, to reflect on what we've read, to reflect on who God is. See, when we pull back and we're not stimulated by all our five senses, we're able to, to tap into our sixth sense. And before you think I'm talking about seeing dead people, I'm talking about Ephesians 6. I used to call that my sixth sense because it helped me remember that in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about not flesh and blood, but spirits, powers, and principalities. And not only there do we we fight, but there, it's in the spiritual realm that we step into relationship with God. We step into his presence. Without this sixth sense, this reflection of of God that's 3D and deep, we get this 2D image of portrait of God that that we pray to. We just throw our prayers to him. A.W. Tozer, he says, though, that this low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way towards curing them. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. So how do we return to this right belief of who God is? A good start is to go back to where he spoke, to what he said, to his word, and to scripture. And a second stone for our altar that we should lay is scripture. And we don't just need to read the word of God. We need to reflect on it. You know, sometimes... I read the word of God, but it doesn't change me because I I may discern the meaning, the meaning. I may rationalize it, but I don't internalize it. I had a a history teacher in high school whose name was Mrs. Carroll. And she would give tests and she would list places and people. And I think you maybe have to do like 45 out of 50 or 30 out of 35. You'd pick a bunch. And she every time you knew it was coming, identify and give significance. Say what it was what happened, but then say why it's significant, and we need to do the same thing with the Word of God. We don't need to just understand what it says, but understand its significance, because the Word of God is significant. It was written to me and for me, and if you want to boost your prayer life, you want to boost your pursuit of God, get in Scripture. Get into Scripture. You know, in youth ministry all the time, they would, students would ask me, like, I'm not, I'm not good at praying. What do I pray, and you're just like, start praying. There's no such thing as a bad prayer. It's the, the But you want to pray well, get into scripture. Just a couple years ago, I started memorizing big passages of psalms and and psalms. And it boosted my prayer life like nothing else. It was like adrenaline for for my altar. Like to be able to get into the psalms and memorize them. Eugene Peterson, the guy that gave us the message version, wrote a lot of books. He says, we learn our prayer vocabulary the way children learn their vocabulary. By being immersed in the language around them and then speaking it back. You want to re-energize your time with God, get into Scripture. Again, not just reading, though. Immersing yourself in it. Meditating on it. Not talking about emptying yourself, but filling yourself with the word and pushing everything else out. Reflecting. Making it personal and transformative. Again, Jesus made God known. The word took on flesh. But we take the word that's available to us and pursue him with it. And then lastly, John 1, 14 says that we have seen his glory. We have seen God's glory. And this is significant because, again, the Israelites would have realized that, that Moses asked to see God's glory. And God's response was, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Moses asked for glory and he received God's goodness. You know, I, I used to find myself asking that question a lot I want to see God's glory. Just God would impress upon me, hey, look at the goodness in your life, look at the favor that you walk in daily. We talk about favor so much as name it, claim it. But really, favor is Jesus Christ. We see in John 1 that the goodness of God is Jesus Christ. We don't need to just name it, claim it. We need to name him, claim him. If we have Jesus, we have all we need. Again, everything else is icing on the cake and a cherry on top. And God wants to give it to us, but favor is Jesus Christ. Favor is the access to God's presence that he gives us. In Exodus 33, this passage Moses talks multiple times about God's favor, that he'd been with them, that he'd led them. And then he says, teach me your way so I can, t- can continue to find favor. We need to favor God's favor. Favor actively, the verb. We need to favor his favor. Make his presence a priority. Say, I'm not leaving until I get a deeper revelation of who you are. I'm not leaving until personal worship moves me to tears. I'm not leaving until I get a deeper understanding of my purpose, how I can better glorify you, pressing in into his presence. But all that said, sometimes I think I get too consumed with how I feel. You know, that's not to say we shouldn't feel moved by times in God's presence, but I get caught asking myself, if I saw God's glory or more specifically, like if I felt his presence, like was I reading the word and I get goosebumps at a certain verse And when I was praying, did I, did I feel his presence? But I think sometimes I need to ask myself, did, did God feel my presence or did I just pass off sitting down with my savior for some drive through devotional? Right? Did I truly spend enough time in God's presence to open up the deepest parts of me? The third stone we need for our altar is prayer. But not just prayer as as this moment of throwing up our list to God. We need a dialogue, to speak, to utter our deepest fears, our biggest frustrations, our hopes and dreams, our longings and requests. And the reason we involve Scripture and we involve solitude is because without it, we can come into God's presence cold. With petitions and prayer lists. And never really make it to adoration. Never really make it to worship or true confession where we begin to reveal the deepest parts of our hearts. Sometimes, again, we can get so stuck up in in saying the right things. And I would, again, tell young people, and I would tell you tonight, sometimes saying the right thing in prayer is more of a barrier than it is a bridge to a great prayer life. You know, one of my nephews, just ever since he could crawl, move around, he loves to climb on you in the best ways. Like, he just loves to cuddle. He loves to be on your lap, loves to lay on your chest. He loves to play with your hair as you play for his. And you tell him... (laughs) You try to have a conversation with him, it used to be like him giving you a Disney plot would take 10 minutes and make no sense. You didn't know if he was talking about Beauty and the Beast or Lion King. You're just like, what are you talking about? But it's cute, and what really matters to me and anybody that hangs out around him is he wants to be with you. It's the same with God. Come on, do you want relationship with him, or are you just throwing words at him? And, of course, there are times, though, when your reading plan has you in, like, Leviticus. How many of you guys are working through the Bible chronologically? yeah. You're, going, you're working through the end of Exodus, you're working through Leviticus, and then it all gets repeated again, like Deuteronomy. And you're just like, you get to prayer, and you're not feeling very inspired in the moment. Like, what am I going to pray about? The scabs they had to examine? Like, what? But, uh, yeah, that, I'm so happy. Like, I, re- I rejoice every year. I think it's Leviticus 13 that God called me to ministry now and not thousands of years ago when you doubled as, like, the doctor. Why am I saying all this? Oh, yeah. So when you're in your reading plan... And you're like in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you don't have a, a lot of stuff that's inspired you in the moment. Three great starting points for a prayer. Three starting points I always think about. The first is humbling myself, asking for mercy, asking for grace, confessing. If you want to boil that down to its chords, saying what the tax collector said in that parable. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and then expounding on that. Second thing I always think about is fanning my flame, requesting more compassion, more zeal. More passion for God's house. To boil that down, to to ask God to give me the same heart that Jesus had for the church and the mission of the church. It says that that passion for the temple, for God's house, consumed him. And then lastly, I think about relationship, echoing this request of Moses. Let me understand you more. You're inexhaustible. (laughs) Help me to understand who you are, to see who you are and your call for me in new ways. See, we, like Moses, We're called to a relationship with God that's that's intimate, that we could call face to face. We, like Moses, have to let the presence of God become a part of who we are because we, like Moses, are called to lead. We all have a a world God's placed us in to be light, to be salt, to be an influence, to, dare I say, be leaders, lead people into the presence of God. And with this call to, to influence people, we can't just take common sense. And throw a layer of spirituality on it and just operate in that way. We need to get God's heart. We need to get God's love. We need to get God's wisdom. We need to get God's DNA in our hearts. We need the presence of God to define us. And if we don't stand in it, we're not going to stand out. If we don't stand in the presence of God continually and make pursuing him a priority, we're not going to stand out when we go out into the world. Again, when Moses asks to see God's glory, And we go to those verses we started with tonight. It says his face glowed. He was marked by the presence of God. And you fast forward all the way to the book of Acts when these, it says, ordinary, unschooled guys were turning the town of Jerusalem upside down. It says the religious leaders saw them and they they realized they were unschooled, realized they were ordinary, but just their countenance. They They could see that these people had spent time with God. Come on, we're called the same way. They reached Jerusalem and and the cities beyond to to reach this region. Reach Suffolk, Carrollton, Isle of Wight, Smithfield, Chesapeake, Portsmouth, all around here. We're called where God's placed us to reach people. But before we invite people into a relationship with God that's so intimate that it can be described as face-to-face, they're going to see our face. And will our countenance, will we be marked by a relationship with the presence of God that defines us? Come on, if I could close and have the worship team come up. Just want to close with this idea again of, of looking in someone's eyes. When you don't like somebody, you're probably not going to more than glance at them. When you like somebody, you might, you might look at them. But when you're in deep devotion, when you love somebody, you will gaze at each other. Isaac Watts uses another word to say the same thing in his famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Come on, let's survey Gaze, ponder deeply the cross, take advantage of the access it gives us to the presence of God. We have the ability to step into the presence of God. See, prayer doesn't just open up doors to a request. Prayer doesn't just open up a door to a response. Prayer opens up a door to relationship with God, to stepping into his presence, the kind of communication that you could describe as face-to-face, where it feels like you're FaceTiming with heaven. So I want everybody to go home and spend five minutes of eye contact with your spouse. Just kidding. <laughs> I do want you to go home this week. We talked about Scripture, talked about solitude, talked about prayer. Spend five minutes in each, 15 minutes, five minutes in Scripture, five minutes just in quiet in silence, reflecting on what you read, and then five minutes actively praying. If that's small potatoes for you, you already spent 15 minutes and more, do 15 minutes of each, 30 minutes of each, but incorporate each one of these things into your altar, and let's pursue God together. We were created to flourish in the presence of God. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3, it says we are transformed from glory. Growth takes place. We are transformed when we step into the glorious presence of God. And then we're transformed from glory to glory. One day we will participate in God's glory in all of its fullness. But come on, there's a heaven now that goes with that heaven forever. Our life in God begins and ends with entering into his presence. Now in the spirit, then face to face. So let's not wait. Let's even now, as the worship team begins to play a song, let's step into his presence now in worship. Let's take advantage of this altar, this moment, pursue the presence of God together. Amen? Come on, let's worship.